Hey guys, before we start the show, Scott and I wanted to talk to our KingCast Cotet about Fangoria. There are many facets of the storied institution that goes back over 40 years, but we wanted to specifically talk about the magazine. In an era where everything is online, Fangoria is keeping things old school, releasing four issues a year with some of the best genre writing out there that will only ever be available in the magazine itself. And we can say that because they were smart enough to hire both Scott and I to write for that magazine, haven't they? That is true. Uh, We are, as most of you know, the voice of a generation, much like Lena Dunham, and... (laughs) If you go to Fangoria.com right now, you can subscribe to the magazine with a very special 25% off your yearly subscription rate from the KingCast by entering the code KingCast. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is going to break. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today we're doing something a little bit different. Today we're looking at a book by King that's one of his nonfiction books. His incredible memoir slash long form creative writing lesson titled On Writing. We figured if we touched on this title, we damn well better invite a great writer on to talk about it. And so we did. You'll know him as the writer-director with a ridiculous track record of great movies from Brick to The Brothers Bloom, which is one of my favorites. Looper, Star Wars The Last Jedi, which is celebrating its third birthday as we record this, by the way. And most recently, Knives Out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage. Mr. Ryan Johnson. <laughs> Welcome to the show, sir. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Say hello to the, I, to the people at home. Hello, people. I would Scott like the record there. to show that I didn't know Scott was going to do that until like five minutes before you logged on. <laughs> <laughs> but you still knew. Let it be entered. I Scott, did know. I, 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 Eric, I was quiet and let it happen. You, were, you, you, just, you just accepted it. Uh, hello. And Scott, Eric, hello. How are you guys yes. doing? Very excited to have you here. I'm, I'm curious exciting. how you've been holding up over the past year. Uh, exactly like everybody else. <laughs> I don't. Is there any point to doing like the "How have you been doing?" type? Th- I feel like well, what have you been? You've been writing, right? I've been writing. Yeah, I've just been home. I've been writing. I've been. Uh, I'm writing the kind of the next Knives Out movie. Uh, so I've just been yeah, just banging my head against a wall trying to trying to write basically. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's been good though. I've just been holed up in Los Angeles, and there are worse places to be holed up. How about you guys? Well, <laughs> we've been uh, record- we've been recording a podcast. We've yes. once we got to. I mean, I mean that's kind of the thing. In in the the COVID times, it's either going to be memories of despair or like filling your time, right? right. So it's just been kind of figuring out what what you could do at home. Thankfully you know, writing, you know, the freelance pieces that, that Scott and I have been doing is that really hasn't changed other than there's not really movies to cover anymore. You yeah, know, there's yeah. like streaming stuff to maybe talk about. And so a lot of that is dried up, but it's the process isn't really different for us. Yeah. It's all just writing from home. Honestly, I think that this was, you know, obviously a very terrible year on, on many fronts, <laughs> but just personally and creatively, the show is completely like re-energized. Oh, well, we're all thrilled for you, Scott. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is what everyone needs to be concerned about. It is. But that's like a thing I get to hold on to this year. Even when things get really, really, really awful and everything, it seems like the chips are down. Like I also like I've really enjoyed doing the show and I'm I'm so glad not to be writing up the, the news about movies and shit every day. Um I'd been doing that for so long that it, it, it was kind of like only an act of God could stop this. And sure enough, uh, right on time, God <laughs> came along and put me in an, into a new job. So I, I'm very thankful for that. It's given me something to hold on to while everything else is going on. Nice. That makes me happy. That's good. Yeah, well, I think this went great. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys yeah, for having thank me. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, I'll, D- I'll DM you again next week and we'll right, uh, get you back on for your uh subsequent performance on yes. the show we didn't tell you you're going to be the third co-host now right 
(laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. You would hate that so much. That would destroy everything. Typically, we start off these shows by having our guests tell us about their Stephen King origin story. I understand maybe you have not read as much King as most, but certainly there was a point where King entered your life as a presence. Yes. Yeah. Well, I um, I mean, I mostly told you I hadn't read much King just to avoid uh, coming on doing your podcast, honestly. I've, just in terms of page count wise, I've, I've, I guess I've read quite, I mean, I haven't read as much as a lot of people, but I, I guess the big thing is I did read all of the Dark Tower books. I started when the first one came out and kind of actually read them as they were being released. I think, when did the first one come out? Unless, it, am I wrong? Did it come out in like 72 or something ridiculous? Was it? It was early 80s, I think. Early when 80s. Grant. Yeah, thereabouts. Like 82 or something. It was not far after the first one came out. But anyway, I, I started and and kind of was following them as they came out. And then I've read um, Salem's Lot, uh, which was great. And I've read uh, I read The Talisman, the one he did with Peter. So good. Straub? 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 Straub. Straub. Which is fantastic. Yeah, but I haven't read, I have not read like The Stand. I haven't read it. I haven't read a lot of the uh, seminal, and by seminal, I mean big works. But I mean, you know, page, page wise, I've read a lot of King. And and I really enjoy, I had not read uh, on writing, but I had had it recommended a lot over the years. So I was really happy to have an excuse to. To read, I feel like I'm cheating because I listened to it, but it was nice because he reads the audiobook. So I was actually, right. actually listened to him, like actually reading it, which added another layer to it. I don't think that's cheating. Yeah. And no. it, well, especially for this title, I did the same thing. I read it the first time, like, you know, flipping physical pages uh, the first time, right when it came out. But uh, leading up to this podcast, I did the same thing, listened to the audiobook and hearing him because t- it's mostly memoir. It's like it's a lot of creative writing advice and some he slips into his old English teacher persona, you know, talking about grammar uh, at a certain point. But, uh, you know, it really does feel like you're just kind of sitting listening to an eight hour interview or conversation mm-hmm. with King just about his mm-hmm. life. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it is one of one of the better audiobook experiences, I think. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, I it was interesting kind of like hearing him. Uh, it was nice to hear like his tone of voice because he it's such a aggressively unpretentious book about writing. And so right. him kind of doing it in his kind of like, I don't know if folksy is the right word, but he just has like a way of talking that just is the opposite of sort of high horsey at all. And mm-hmm. right. very much match kind of like the the tone of the book, the style of the book, I guess. Eric, where when you first read it, were you writing for a living at that point or was... Yeah, this this it was in the it, it, early two thousand. It was like two thousand or two thousand one, right? Because he he got hit by the van in ninety nine, and he was halfway through writing that whenever he got hit. Right. Uh, yeah. No, for sure. I I was that was me just out of high school, and I feel really terrible because you know he he makes a point in the book where he says if you can memorize like sports stats or what actors in what movie and stuff like don't give me this bullshit about how you know grammar can't stick to you or whatever. Grammar's never stuck to me. I just it's kind of like you know when you oh fuck I can't make that comparison because it makes me sound like I'm comparing myself to this person. But like the, what I was going to do is say like you know Paul McCartney said for years he couldn't. Oh my god, you're uh, no Paul McCartney. Like, Give it a rest. Give it a rest. I, I you're am no Paul, Paul McCartney. You keep trying to push this narrative. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, my woke narrative that I'm Paul McCartney, the Paul McCartney of the blogging world. Um, <laughs> but, Ryan, but it's been really bad lately like, too because he recently <laughs> launched a Wings cover band and it is awful. <laughs> <laughs> and just like Paul McCartney, I can't read sheet music. Um, but uh, the point is, is like I think a lot because of books like on writing or just reading King a lot when I was growing up and like forming my my own writing voice. I base so much of it on King that I know what sounds right and I know what feels right. So even if I'm if I couldn't like break down, you know, oh that that adverbs in the wrong place or whatever, I just know what sounds right. I don't know. To to that point, like I was just kind of doing the writing. I, it, that's just how how it was for me. You know, I just was doing it. I didn't think about having to to be perfect and make a perfect college essay every time I was mm-hmm. putting something down. As anybody who read my work at Any Cool can attest to, I'm sure. You know what word sounding is good? 
Yes, word sounding is good. Yeah. You want words sound good for sure. Yeah. Like yeah. that's the first rule. I read the the book came out in two thousand. I looked it up. I would have read this when it came out, which was before I was making a living writing. So I only had so much use for it, but I also loved it. You know, it felt very intimate, and it was interesting to kind of get a peek behind that curtain on his thought process. Mm-hmm. And then rereading it for this episode. There was so much more for me to to pull from this thing. And he definitely uh, in that section where he's, you know, sort of going off with the grammar and, and parts of speech and what have you. He corrected a few of my worst ticks, I think, right. uh, uh, an abundance of adverbs. You know, I'm, I'm very guilty of that. The idea that if it's a possessive of a name that ends in S, it should be an apostrophe and an S, not just an apostrophe. I've never broken myself of that habit, but. Yeah. On this reread, I'm like, okay, Stephen King says that's the way, so I'm just going to do that. <laughs> I've never so been clear on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we get too deep into the weeds on on writing, can can we loop back around to the Dark Tower for a second? Um, I'm curious about something. Well, yeah. Um, if you were reading them as they came out, more or less, that means that, much like us, you got stuck on that cliffhanger at the end of Wastelands, and then there was a six-year gap until Wizard and Glass. I'm curious I'm if you were back. Is that the one where they're on the train and yeah. it's the, yeah. yeah. It it's ends like the with them. the dark thing. Yeah. Do you, do you <laughs> yeah. remember that weight being particularly harsh or were you like kind of, yeah, I mean, I mean like anything with those, I mean like with the, I guess game of Thrones, it's a whole different thing. Cause they've done the whole TV show now, but like, I don't know, you get to the end of the book and it's like, Oh, uh, but then there's that big a gap. It's not like every single day you're waking up thinking, oh, are they, they going to beat Charlie the Choo Choo? You know, like, <laughs> I think it's a long enough gap that it's less frustrating than than waiting a week for the next episode of a show that you're into or something. Yeah, yeah you can kind of backburner the thought after a certain point. Yeah. And the that interesting- was thing to me was reading this was um, just because he does, I know we'll get into it, but because he does go into the whole accident thing and that in the context, of, and most of what I knew about that came from that crazy meta thing he does in the last Dark Tower book um, mm-hmm. right. where he kind of inserts himself into the narrative and knowing that this was, I don't know, that was very, very interesting. I remember like right when I first started uh, getting to know you, it was like uh, you and Lucky. Lucky was really big into the Lucky McKee. He was really yeah. big into the Dark Tower stuff too, right? Yeah. And Chris, Chris Overson. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys who were huge king heads, I was about to say. Right. What do you refer to king yourselves hats. as? I think that's about king right. hats. <laughs> yeah, me that king hats. King hats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. um, it's so funny. And we've mentioned this on the show a couple of times, but it's, it's amazing to me now how prevalent Dark Tower is. And I think a lot of that is because how public the final books were kind of, you know, they were big releases, you know, they lots of publicity around them. And mm-hmm. people finally like, oh, the all the books are out. So I'll read all of them combined with the movie coming out. So like all of our circles, all the the bloggers and stuff were like, oh, I'm going to read all these books because the movie's coming out. And I want to talk you know, with authority on, on this surely important cultural milestone that's about to happen. <laughs> um, uh, it definitely requires when, that I read 4,000 pages to understand it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like back when, when the books were coming out, back when we first started hanging out with each other and talking about geek stuff, it was a big thing for me to see that, you know, I, I think I we, we were all at Lucky's Place or something and he had the Dark Tower books on a shelf of what was released up to that point. And I was like, holy shit, there are other people that know the series and, and even big King fans didn't know about the Dark Tower. Yeah, it was lonely, yeah. I think. You know, yeah, it was lonely being like a Dark Tower nerd. The under, or, yeah, the Velvet Underground of of King book. It was a little, yeah. And that's what it felt like when I first started reading them was, and thinking back, I think maybe when I read the first book, the second book was out, but no, I don't think so. I feel like I read the first book really, really early, but it felt a little bit like, like after I finished it, I wasn't even really sure if he was going to keep going with the series. It was kind of a, I remember it feeling that kind of like it had a little bit of sort of the funkiness when you hear people describe reading, discovering like the Lord of the Rings trilogy back in the day, you know, picking mm-hmm. up a paperback and like, you know, it, it felt arcane in that way. And, um, and I remember, I mean, I was hooked basically. I mean, I really enjoyed the first book, but drawing of the three was, is really, um, 
to me, that's still my favorite book of the whole series. I think that's, uh, and after I read that, I was just like, after I read that scene with the, with the lobsters on the beach. Yes. Dada Chuck. I was like, ah, I was hooked. It was great. That one in particular is just a machine. Like the structure of it is perfect. It's, it's perfectly paced. You know, a lot of times when I recommend Dark Tower to people, they'll read the first one and be like, yeah, I don't know if I get this. Like, I don't know if mm-hmm. it's just really my thing. And I'm like, just at least give it through the second book. This is why Eric and I have argued about this before, but this is why sometimes I recommend people start with the second one and then loop back around to the first one like it's a prequel. Oh, that's you know? interesting. That's I know you're not supposed to do that, but I have found that it is um, a more successful way to get somebody into the series. You, you, on the other hand, I don't think people uh, who start that way deserve the Dark Tower series. <laughs> they, have to, they have to eat their vegetables before they get to the get to the meat. I don't want to discourage anyone from you know it is slow, it is ponderous, it is completely unlike anything you would expect from a King novel. The tone of it is very like dead serious. Drawing of the Three is like a blockbuster movie. It's got these perfect archetype characters throughout it it's got the cool thing with the door and these like set pieces like the showdown at balthazar's where eddie is like fighting nude and shit and <laughs> it has, as ryan pointed out the lobsters and yeah. um all that shit is so cool man um there's also a ticking a ticking time bomb on that story because roland's slowly dying throughout the entire book oh, that's right that's right i forgot about that it's a great one Let's loop back around to on writing now. Eric, how do you want to kick this off? Listen, I think that the interesting thing about having you on and why we're so happy to have you on is that you have a very distinct writing voice. You can tell a Ryan Johnson script, right? You can cover all these different kinds of movies. You know, Looper is nothing like Knives Out, you know, on paper, but you can clearly tell that it has the same authorial voice. And so I'm very curious, especially since you've come at this book well into your writing career, like does something like it's this, do you, over. can you, honestly, it's, it's almost at the end of the right. Let's be honest with ourselves. Yeah. 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 The tail end of your writing up. career. Rapidly. <laughs> in the waning hour. In the gloaming. <laughs> can you read something like this and, you know, still, you know, learn something from somebody else's process. Like, is that, is that how you approach this or do you just, does it, it does it more like just set Stephen King's process in cement for you and you understand how he does it versus it informs anything that you do in your writing process? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's to whatever extent it's the latter. It's definitely not a thing of, Oh, I know how to do this. It's because it doesn't matter how long you've been writing Every time you sit down to do it again, it just, it doesn't get easier. It feels like it gets harder. It feels like you should kind of like build up like some kind of confidence and like solidity in your process. And every single time it feels like you're kind of learning it again when you sit down to do it, at least for me. So in that way, no, it's, it's endlessly interesting. And I mean, with this book, I hopefully won't insult anyone by saying this, but like one of my thing, at least favorite type of of Twitter things is kind of the glib, very like uh, authori- authoritative uh, writing advice threads <laughs> that some yes, writers right. give. The, this is how you do it. My followers ask me, and I will tell you how you do it. You know, and that kind of—I I don't know—it's coming from the right place, and I, I know a lot of people, and there is a lot of good advice in there, and a lot of people get a lot out of it but there's something about uh this book where it's sort of like only nixon could go to china like stephen king writing how he writes you know it's it's stephen fucking king he's just he's written so much and so much of it has connected with such a huge uh so many people um it feels like something that just has an authority and a weight that very few other writers writing how-to books could could kind of get away with. And the fact that with that, his voice through this, like I said before, is so completely nuts and bolts and and non-pretentious, just kind of like inspiring, I guess. Uh, but anyway, the the yeah, it um no, it, it and look, even with the the grammar stuff that he discusses, I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm Eric, I'm kind of like like you. But like you said, I mean, I think the the really, really useful thing is just kind of hearing about how he does it and his process. And to me, the 
there's kind of a lot more about it was interesting rather than useful, but that's kind of just because I, I, all writers after they've done it for a while, get kind of in their ways. You do get your way of doing it. And even if your way of doing it sucks, you still, <laughs> that's kind of, you're in that, you're in that rut. You got to just kind of keep doing it that way. Cause that's the way, you know, but there was so much that was interesting to me, especially in, I mean, for me, cause I've only written screenplays the real interesting thing was kind of like the difference whenever he would say something was very different than the way that I would approach something. It was always checking it against, well, how is that different because it's the way he approaches it or how is, is prose writing fundamentally different from screenwriting, uh, which is kind of an interesting question. I love that part in there where he's, it's sort of the, the buildup to the, you know, the grammar section for lack of a better term mm-hmm. where he tells the story about the toolbox and then sort of puts it in those terms. It's such a, you talk about nuts and bolts and the fact that he he speaks straight. Like, here's an analogy anyone can understand. The advice in it is so practical. Also, know? by the way, one of the best explanations of theme in writing that I think mm-hmm. I've ever read. Theme is something that, you know, I have friends who are fantastic writers who have, I've had like drag out fights with over theme because I'm a big believer in in the importance of, in the place of theme and writing something. It's just, which is just like the way I do it. I, I can't approach something without kind of at some point figuring out kind of what the thing is about to me. But I feel like theme so often is kind of characterized as like King says in the book, like a, you know, like something you're given as a writing assignment or something. The way he describes it as, you know, theme is the thing that will gradually, sometimes it gradually emerges as you're coming up with the story. And uh, theme is what you have on your mind when you go to bed at night. You know, theme is the thing that you're kind of like, arguing with yourself about in the mirror in the morning. And then that finds its way into the writing just because that's the thing that's on your mind. And the work is a way of you kind of turning over that question in your head and kind of wrestling with it. And ultimately that it's not something like if you're, if a story doesn't feel like you need to concentrate on it, don't worry about it. You know, he has, I like that he kind of throws it away also. um, And, and ultimately says it's not a big deal. um, Cause I think that's the only productive way of, of approaching it, I guess. Yeah. The book opens with a pretty lengthy memoir section where he's talking about, you know, sort of giving you these snapshots of his life growing up and the conditions he and his, his brother and mother were living under. And then ultimately him, you know, working in these like laundry mills and, and what have you, you know, very blue collar. I'm curious if you were aware of that in King's history. And if not, like what you made of that section. Well, he's, he's a great storyteller, you know, so it's just him. And it was a really entertaining section of the book, just him telling kind of the story. I I guess I didn't know much about his upbringing, but that completely just makes sense to me. I knew that he didn't, you know, it's not like he came from a family of like New Yorker writers or something. I, right. I And you get the sense in his books that he is very, you know, um, his voice is very much his voice. And it, it makes a lot of sense that that's kind of uh, how he came up. And it's also just really refreshing. I mean, it connects to at the end of the book when he's talking about which is something that's very similar with screenwriting. Uh, everyone is trying to get in their frustration with this feeling of um, you need connections to get in or you need connections to get an agent. And so it's it's very refreshing to get this incredibly vivid kind of picture of, of where this guy came from. That's That's the opposite of that. And then get kind of the path that he took of just kind of dogged persistence and, and, focusing on his craft uh and how that you know eventually got him somewhere yeah, so it's a, it's a that's a really inspiring combination that's sort of the thing you you always want to communicate to anyone who's you know when i talk to like younger writers who are just starting out who are trying to get into it that's sort of you're always trying to distill that into two sentences you can answer with at a q and a <laughs> that's kind of the heart right, of it right. you know just, yeah. just keep plugging away, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, if you build it, they will come. Um, well, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, just focus on your craft and focus on, um, that sounds like, yeah, I don't know. That sounds like a Masonic phrase or focus on your craft. Right. But fo- as opposed to focusing outward on on the market, focus on making your writing better. And of course, part of that is the other great thing that King gets into, which is the closed door, open door drafts, which I think is a mm. really 
smart way of thinking about it. So, I mean, obviously part of the craft is that you're writing something for people to read and you want to make sure. I, I think he he's very practical and clear-headed when it comes to taking notes, essentially. And it comes to, and I love the idea of like the first draft being something that's inward and the second draft being something where you start to listen to people. Um, but he walks a really good line because, I mean, you guys know that taking notes is such a tricky thing because um, I always think about like you walk out of a movie that you loved with a group of like 10 friends and in the lobby, every single person is going to have a different take on. And one of your friends who's like an incredibly smart friend will say, that was the biggest piece of junk I ever saw. And you were just moved to tears by the movie. You know what I mean? You got remembering that there, there is an element of just individual taste when it comes to anything, um, which can be hard when you're first writing something, you're in such a vulnerable place. You're, it's like you're drifting at sea and just looking for some buoy to grab onto something solid. Like someone tell me if this is good or not. And remembering that every opinion is not the voice of God and that you have to, to some extent, kind of throw it out to a group of people and look for common threads to to find your way. And that's really mm-hmm. smart. I get the same feeling reading this as I do when I read Robert Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew, yeah. where it's kind of like equal parts. How did I do it? Advice, but also, you know, memoir. This is who I am as a person. And acknowledging that because I did it doesn't mean you can do this. You know, this, this is, this was my path. This is how I made it Here's Some general advice, but he doesn't really sugarcoat it. In fact, he King has that whole section of the book where he was talking about how, you know, learning grammar and learning all this, all these tricks can't make you a great writer. Yeah. I think he said that you can maybe make a functional writer, uh, a good writer, you know, or you can, it's like all in stages. You can't take a bad writer and make him a good writer, but you can make a, a bad writer, a functional writer, maybe, or you can, somebody who's innate talent is functional. You can make him good. Or if you're good, you can make him really good or whatever. If you just learn, you know, the, the ins and outs. I think that's the secret sauce of this book is that he's, like you said, he doesn't hold himself up as an authority. He doesn't say, you know, if you buy my book, you know, you'll be a guaranteed bestseller overnight. You know, Mm -hmm. he's not Mm -hmm. huckstering it. And I think that sort of in the same way as Rebel Without a Crew, I think one of the reasons this this, this book, excuse me, is uh, universally beloved by those who've read it is that it's aspirational. You know, this guy came from nothing. He just kept at it. You know, he's got practical advice to offer. And now he's living the dream. Even if you're not a writer, which I wasn't when I first read this book, it was an aspirational story. And I think there's some of that in that Rodriguez book as well. I haven't always loved Robert Rodriguez's movies, but I have always admired his tenacity and and his ambition. Even when he's reaching outside of the boundaries of what he's capable of, he's, you know, really gunning for something. And I I find those kind of stories to be very uplifting and sort of, you know, everyone can take some something away from this, regardless of what the subject matter is. And they're both stories about people finding making their own path. You know, that's right. King just happened to to write himself, you know, into into popularity, you know, into fame and and, uh, you know, just by putting in the work and so funny when he talks about <laughs> how how you know he was like oh man i guess you know i'll be an old man right and he was like what in his mid 20s when <laughs> when he published his published carry or whatever and he was like yep i'm over the hill i'm just going to be a teacher for the rest of my life maybe i'll get published you know maybe when i'm in my 30s it's like fuck you dude um <laughs> but uh, you know but it's but the man just like he plugged away he was selling short stories he was you know just I, I don't know that that's the, the great thing about on writing is that it, it, it gives you an insight into this guy who, you know, for most of us grew up as like, he's just this confident guy who was like destined with a name like Stephen King. He was like destined to be the master of horror. And, and he wasn't, he was just a guy, you know, he was a guy who happened to be a very talented writer and got noticed. And, uh, uh, you know, and he's never put, put himself in a position to be anything more than that, at least uh, in terms of lording himself over people. Mm-hmm. Well, and the work aspect of it, I mean, that's, you know, it's like he's in that school of writers like, you know, Lawrence Block and like the a lot of the writers who are writing like crime fiction and science fiction that, that just 
they work, they write, it's what they do. They sit down every day and they turn out pages. There's a lack of preciousness about it. Just realize you listen to like his work habits and you listen to the no, no, no nonsense kind of like get down there and start doing it. And, and suddenly the fact that he's output seems so vast, it makes complete and total sense. And um, it seems like a re- that's, that, that was just inspiring for me, you know, being someone who writes a script every writing, writes a, feels like they're sweating blood writing a 120 page script every three years. You know, or something very kind of like bracingly, you know, like a glass of cold water in the face about uh, the writers who, uh, you know, learn their craft by, by really honing it in that way. And, you know, he's one of those guys. To be fair on the idea of you taking three years to write a movie, you are writing intricate movies. Yeah, which is one of the things that like – so the the one section of it, the structure section, was the one thing that I – just in terms of how I write that probably had the biggest – the biggest – difference and it's interesting because the the grammar like the grammar the grammar section he's like it's not a big deal you just learn it just learn it and do it you know it is something you kind of gotta know you can forget it when you need to but just learn it and um you know writing dialogue it's the same thing it's like you know he, he has all these very practical like learn it so you can forget it but it is something that you should know type things and then it's interesting when he gets to structure suddenly there's a switch and he he talks about structure as if it's this dangerous thing that is going to make your <laughs> writing rote you know that's going to make your writing predictable and and rote and that's the one thing in terms of his process that I I'm 180 degrees from uh but I think it's also a very different thing writing a screenplay rather than writing a novel right. you know and so I I think that might have a lot to do with it but to me, the notion of thinking about structure uh, in approaching the writing and structuring something out beforehand, I mean, I guess for me, it's just the way that I, I work. I know there's a, lot of, there's a lot of great screenwriters who don't. I've heard the Coens just kind of start writing at the beginning and find their way through it, and their movies are better structured than anything I'll ever make in my life. You know, So there are great writers who can do it. For me, though, it, it, it does... I don't know. I need to be able to like draw the whole map to know where the whole thing's going, to know what connects to where. And at the very least, I feel like, I don't know. I, 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 so I, I kind of like bristle a little at the notion that structure necessarily leads to predictability and roteness and cliche. The idea that if you know where you're going, the audience will too, I think is bullshit because I, I think Yes, only if your story is bad. <laughs> like, you know, right. you, you know, you, you only if you do it wrong. I think if you if you if you come up with some lazy structure that everyone kind of recognizes and knows, yes, sure, that's true. But the notion that working structure that that knowing where you're going in advance itself is dangerous. That was the one thing in the book that I disagree with. But again, it's not even like disagree as a philosophical, pro- whatever, who cares? It, I, should, I shouldn't even use the word disagree. It's the one thing where my process was is very different than than what he does. Um, but you can see in his writing, like there is that feeling of danger at every moment. You know, that feeling that at any point, like crazy shit can go down. And that's part of what keeps you turning the page. So you can see it reflected in the work, you know, it, it obviously obviously it works it's an interesting thing he he uses an example in the book of the stand and how he had, he was 500 pages into it and was stuck and he he just didn't know what to do i think he even said that he kind of had an idea of where he was going but it just wasn't fitting into that idea of where he was going and so he was just stuck and then he realized that the thing to do is blow up the characters like right. literally he plants a a bomb and it, he is placing that character nick andros as being the head of the the new uh, uh free society the boulder uh, free zone um and he is mother abigail's chosen one it's like this is this is the character that is supposed to be front and center and then he gets blown up <laughs> mm-hmm. you know it's like king said that that freed him to do what he does one of the charms of reading king is you can sometimes see him figuring it out on the page as he's going mm-hmm. like he'll that's why he has so many scenes in his books of characters talking things out talking what's happening out mm-hmm. so uh, an example that pops into my mind instantly is Salem's Lot where 
there are like multiple scenes throughout that book where it is just two characters talking about, is this vampires? This is vampires, right? It's like, no, it can't be vampires. Vampires are crazy. That'd be crazy. But it is vampires, right? You know, there's like four or five scenes in Salem's Lot where it is just these characters talking about, this is ridiculous, but it's real. So we got to deal with it. And this is how we should deal with it. And every time I come upon one of those sections, I always like kind of maybe because of reading on writing, I think of King sitting, you know, at his typewriter or at his word processor going, all right, so what's my next step? Where do I go from here? Uh, my characters will tell me, so I'm just going to let them talk mm-hmm. and walk me through it. I can't do any sort of, w- whether it's creative writing or whether it's uh, structuring a, a feature story or something, I can't not at least have a, an outline in my head of where I'm going or else I, I just meander, as you can tell, as mm-hmm. I'm meandering right now. It could be a, a screenwriting thing. I mean, it just because like the thing that you described, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's so it is really cool on the in the pages of a novel to feel like you're I, I don't know, you can feel the benefit of it. It's something that if you do that in a movie, you're you're dead. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you just can't. You don't have the real estate. You don't have the and you know when you're watching a movie when that happens and it just it dies on the screen. It feels like, you know, you, you a movie, at least the type of, of narratives that, that, that I like to to make like that they rely on forward propulsion they rely on you know i don't know it it takes a lot to keep an audience sitting in the dark for two hours without getting antsy and you just don't have the luxury of of that i guess um i i I couldn't imagine like a scene in knives out where where you have like a couple of characters just sitting around like the trooper characters going man Mm. this is crazy isn't it yeah this is (laughs) and yet you're sure i'm gonna be stumped on this one how did he but he he killed him so but no somebody killed him i don't know like you can't get away with that in (laughs) in that movie yeah, but maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe you can't. I mean, and the thing is, again, like I, I, you, I know the type of scene you're talking about. And so you guys, I know in Stephen King's books, and I know the feeling also of feeling that you're describing overall, of feeling like you're discovering, especially because it, it's all often such like crazy situations the characters in. There's something really, really grounding and smart about feeling like you're never ahead of the character. You know, the story is never ahead of the characters, that you're finding your way forward with with the characters themselves. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally get it. It's, it's uh, in a way, I guess it's just, I'm, I fear it because it's not what, it's something that I don't feel like I could ever do. <laughs> so it makes it cool, I guess. I am curious though about your, and let's use Knives Out as an example. It's it's very intricate. You know, there's setups, payoffs all through that thing. What does your actual real world process look like when you sit down to start on something like that? Like you've got the idea, but are you note cards on a board with beats you got to hit? Or are you? Uh, I've, I've, I mean, at some point in every writing process, I get really excited and I go to Staples and I get note cards and tape. And I, I put it up on the wall and I feel I've, I've wasted half a day and I take a nap and I never look at it again. <laughs> like the note cards have never worked for me. I think I'm just too lazy, but it is a nice way to kind of procrastinate for an afternoon. Um, but I do No, I, I work in little notebooks. I work in little kind of pocket size, just moleskin notebooks and um, all handwritten. Uh, yeah, I, I handwrite uh, up to a point, and there's a point where you got to start typing. Um, but I try and delay that as long as possible, keeping it kind of fluid and handwritten on the page, keeps it um, flexible so that I feel like I can. Once once I'm typing, it feels harder to kind of edit in the big sense. I kind of have to like get through the entire draft once I'm typing. How personal are those journals? Is that something you would ever consider publishing? Uh, maybe. Be. I feel like when I was younger, it was much more when I was like younger and like, you know, single and miserable. It was much more a mixture of <laughs> embarrassing personal shit and uh, poetry in the in the margins and what. Yeah, you. exactly. Yeah, just it would it would uh, so devolve into sad song lyrics and shit. So but but Dracula. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, now it, it is it is much more just just. um kind of working out the story i don't know if it i don't know if it'd even be interesting or legible more to the point i doubt it would be very legible but um handwriting? yeah i mean yeah i have horrible handwriting but the 
I guess the other thing is it's really where the writing is is happening is 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 in your head. Like the notebook is that's why I'm never actually afraid if I that I'm going to lose one of my notebooks. It's not like, you know, the notebook is almost just like a uh one of those like meditation balls that you like juggle in your hand or something. It's almost just something to have some physical focus point for the thing that you're building in your head, which is the actual thing. It cements it, right? Like if you if you take the time to to write out a thought, then it cements it in, in into your brain. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and sometimes just clarifies it. Sometimes just writing down three words that is kind of the essence of a thought. You just see those on paper, and there's something. It's like a talisman or something. There's something that just like solidifies and clarifies it. But I start with. Uh, I mean, I I really do start structurally once i kind of like know i mean i start really really vague generally i start just thinking about like story and and genre and kind of um have a couple handholds in terms of like what the what i want the thing kind of to to feel like i guess um and then i very quickly i have to think about like big picture structure and so i'll draw like arcs divided by actually i posted the one on twitter from knives out um i don't know how to find it but it's there somewhere you can see it there's a um a picture of like the notebook page that has the full drawn thing and that's how i start and it's it's a combo it's a weird combination of that kind of bridge making engineering and also very fuzzy intuitive feeling your way forward in terms of the story and the characters. And, and then at some point you start, I break it down into sequences, which are just 10 to 12 minute sort of little arcs of action uh, and connect those up. And then you break it down to scenes and you kind of start zoomed out and start zooming in. And it's kind of a messy process and it's a little bit different each time I'm in the middle of it right now. Um, so uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of. So you're still working on the on the script for the Knives Out sequel. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, I am. How painful a birth is it? The mystery of Knives Out was so airtight. It's like Looper in that way, where it's it's just a a Swiss watch, right? And the challenge for writing one of these movies isn't not just like plotting it out and making sure it's airtight, but also making sure it's a compelling mystery. That seems like so much pressure to me. Like, hey, we want to do another one of these. You got another mystery in you? And you're like, yeah, I can do that. That seems superhuman to me. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Now, now, nope. Now I feel now I feel a lot more terrified to hang up and <laughs> go back to work. You're right. Pressure. Uh, no, no, it's I mean, because the, the, the truth is, um, I mean, so, for example, with Knives Out, with a murder mystery, I think I mean, to me, first of all, I just I I. Uh, brain also i apologize are you guys hearing a bunch of clunks and noises they're no. having okay all right all right there's construction going on in my house so oh, anyway, not, adding a new wing to their house wing, the wampler wing <laughs> i i assumed it was karina just like going ham on on uh somebody yeah exactly disparaging so, some you know some <laughs> old hollywood <laughs> mogul or something like in h in the background of the tom jane episode wait what yeah, we interviewed Tom Jane, and uh, when he logged into this program that we're using right now, first of all, t- I don't know if you've ever spoken at length to Tom Jane. I have. I okay. met Tom Jane shoeless in the restaurant. <laughs> I asked him yeah. about that. He got very animated. I said, "Why?" I, like, I got to ask, why don't you wear shoes? And he's like, well, apparently, I don't wear shoes, so fucking people can give me shit all the time because I don't wear shoes. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, Fair. Like, we got into the waiting room to record and we were just kind of shooting the shit for a minute. And um, he was clearly like yelling back and forth between himself and a room behind him. And you could hear a woman in the background, you know, yelling back. And eventually he was like, sorry guys, that's just my girlfriend and Haish. And then there are parts in that episode where you can hear her from the next room over, just like giving somebody the business on the phone at full volume. So Wow. After we dropped that, people were messaging me like, is Anne Heche okay? And I, <laughs> yeah, I don't think, you know, there was anything untoward happening. I think she's just uh, a fiery individual, you know? <laughs> it's funny that you, you didn't went for the first and last name and identifying. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, she talked to us too, because uh, as soon as he said that, I was like, no shit. Tell her I just rewatched the <laughs> micro remake. 
And uh, I really appreciate what they were going for. And all of a sudden, a voice, Anne Heche's voice, booming through the headphones was like, we were making art. Uh, (laughs) It's something. Yeah. I'm all for it. Or was I? Oh, so yeah, the you were asking about like the the math basically of like doing a mystery or a time travel thing and like mm-hmm. trying to make it all connect. Yeah, that takes that just takes work, but that's kind of like doing a crossword puzzle. That's a work that that's work that you can just kind of buckle. And that that's also just sort of um I don't know. That's not the hard part, I guess, at least for me, like that's, that's kind of the fun part. And that's, it is, is also really like a crossword puzzle. It's very defined problem solving. You're essentially trying to come up with the simplest possible solution for each one of these weird little problems. You're trying to kind of like connect the dots in as direct a way possible that hopefully is also something that you can mask from the audience until it happens. So it feels like a surprise. And it's also something where you you kind of, you know, you have the benefit of having the whole thing laid out and structured. So if you have something later in the movie and you're like, God, how am I going to get away with that reveal? You can just scan your eyes three inches to the left and say, oh, I can plant this here in a very non-obtrusive way that mm-hmm. uh, will, that people will recognize, but not like it won't tip it. So that part is fun. The tougher part is the more important part, which is the part that King talks about, which is just telling an engaging story scene to scene and just keeping it engaging, keeping it interesting, keeping it alive on the page um, and keeping it, the characters feeling like they're not being idiots scene to scene and that they're actually like, you know, I guess, I guess that's the other thing with structure. I guess the real fear with structure is that it's going to pen you into having your characters make decisions because the next tick on your arc says that they're supposed to do this. And that is the one real danger of it. And it's the thing that you have to, once you get into, because once you get into writing, it's not like Hitchcock was shooting his storyboards. It, it is you. It is still a fluid process when you're typing. And I've had big things change when I get in there and start writing page to page, because ultimately the only thing, you know, it's, it's, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, but the only thing that matters is how the movie feels moment to moment. And if it feels like your structure is angling your characters into decisions that feel wrong in the moment on the page, then it's a problem. You have to change it. It's also the reason why you got to listen to your actors on set projecting forward a little bit more, you know, actors. And sometimes the questions actors have, you you can just, you know, tell them, well, it's because this and this and here's the thing and then they'll they'll get it but a lot of times it really uh, if they have an instinct that something feels like why am i doing this um uh, you know it really behooves you to listen to that and to and to take that seriously um and to make sure that you're not uh yeah at that point it's too late because you're shooting <laughs> but uh, it's not too late because you, you come and I, I i've done that too i've come up with you know big changes on set and in terms of like you taking okay let's take 20 minutes with the actor and figure out well is this actually a problem and you know is this something an audience is actually going to bump on or is this something because we're sitting here dissecting an eighth of a page for half an hour where we just have our heads inside um so it, it's i don't know it's a process but yeah the, the, that's something that especially in writing when when you are writing from structure you always have to be aware of is that when you are typing that it still feels like a natural flow and it doesn't feel like you're angling the flow of it just to match kind of your outline in the way that feels unnatural i guess i have a question about characters and that's something that king doesn't really touch upon much in on writing he talks a lot about dialogue which is i think the closest he gets to character voices um and one of king's biggest strengths is how he flushes out characters and every character in a king book you feels real um and i think that oddly comes very naturally to him so he doesn't even think about it like there could have been a whole chapter in on writing about like what makes a good character or what makes an interesting character. Mm-hmm. Um, and you likewise, you come up with uh, amazingly interesting characters, you know, all, all the time. Everybody who who has a line in the brothers bloom is, you know, could be the lead of their own movie, you know, <laughs> like they, they, they are that interesting. I, I would love to talk on that before we, we part ways and, and how, 
important character is at what point do they come into the process? Is it an idea? Then the characters to fit the idea? Is it a character first? Is it like, I'm sure the voice develops over the process, but you know, I'd love to ask you how important character is in your writing process. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a million ways of doing it and there's, you know, so just for me personally, I do, but you can probably tell just from the way I approach, approach it in general that, and especially with something like a murder mystery, it's it's a weird combination of figuring out the character's function in the story, um, not just plot wise, not just like oh they have to get this thing and bring it here or something, or they have to, you know, but figuring out like their function, their bigger function in the story in terms of, um, I, I guess the, the the primary thing is just especially from the way that I write, I always feel like. Um, I don't know. Characters are not, this is going to sound so dumb, but I'm, I promise I'm going somewhere with it. Yeah, and this is also going to be probably completely useless. But so with that preface, characters are not people. Characters are fragments. Uh, and the movie is a person. That's the way essentially that I approach not just individual characters, but kind of the cast of characters in a movie, feeling like there has to be a sense of balance. And that allows me to um, to think of every character as a fragment of a bigger picture in of the bigger picture in terms of um sort of what the movie is about in terms of the overall personality that is the movie and that allows me to think in terms of balance i tend then to create characters that are kind of like polar balances polar opposites of each other to balance each other out um which to me is useful because it keeps me thinking relationally in terms of characters it it keeps me from thinking about these people in vacuums and keeps me thinking in terms of these characters bouncing off of each other and um which is really what they do on the page you know i think the other thing that i the other important thing in terms of um just for me that I always try and like keep in mind, you know, it's just that characters are defined by their actions. They're defined by what they do. It's the dumbest like rote writing thing in the world, but it it's, it's something though that, and because it's so easy and so tempting to give a character a fucking backstory with their mom who fell through the ice in the river or something, or give them like a monologue where they tell you what's on their mind or give them, you know, and, I've done it, you know, it's, it's, I, I know like the pull of it and, and remembering that what's truly gold in terms of drawing vivid characters that audiences are going to be engaged with is seeing if you can express what you were going to express through a monologue or a flat or a backstory, but through a difficult choice they're presented with that they make on screen. And what that choice tells you about who they are as a person, you know, that, that essentially is to me, the golden way of defining your characters and maybe kind of the only really effective way I think uh, is always through, through the choices they make um, and the things they do on the page or on the screen, which is hard. It's a lot harder than writing a, here's my deal monologue, you know, but it's worth it. The Phoebe Cates, this is why I hate Christmas uh, backstory. <laughs> wow. In Gremlins 2, you mean? <laughs> this is why I hate. What was, the, what was the kind of the parody they did of it in Gremlins 2? Was it Easter? I, I forgot, but they did, it's another holiday that they that she hates. I thought it was something she just like hates uh, Labor Day or something. Yeah, it was something ridiculous. Okay. Arbor Day. <laughs> this is why I chop down any tree I see. <laughs> uh, yeah. Before we wrap up here, I absolutely have to bring this up. I have no choice. I'm legally obligated, right? Yeah. Something that we have talked about on this show on more than one occasion is that Eric and I believe you should adapt Stephen King's The Jaunt for the screen. And I'm assuming... Okay. The Jaunt is... It takes place in the future. Earth has developed this teleportation technology that can take you from Earth to Mars. And this family is is traveling uh, across the solar system. So the father is telling the son sort of in what ends up being a series of flashbacks about the guy who invented jaunt technology. That's what they call it. The jaunt when you teleport Mm -hmm. and it's got a twist ending to it. Very horrifying. But there are elements of that story that seem right up your alley. So I just want to incept that idea into your brain so that uh, you get a few years up the road. Maybe you don't have any ideas left. You steal it from this. What do you mean a few years? Come on, I'm look, just looking at my watch. I'm giving you two to three. Two to three times. 
that's where we're at. You hit a wall with the Knives Out sequel. We can you can always <laughs> put in teleportation. Is it Skeleton Crew or is it? Yeah, it's Skeleton. It is Skeleton. Yeah. Yes. You would love this, even if you don't want to turn it on me or whatever. That's fine. We can deal with yeah. that later. But does King still do the thing? I don't know if this was just an urban legend where he like was he the guy? Did he does he like option his movies for a dollar or something yeah, like that? Dollar yeah. babies. They're for, yeah, student filmmakers and young filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, okay. Fuck it. Give me a dollar. And then he, <laughs> you, know, you know, typically this is where we would ask you to plug what you're working on. You know, we've already discussed, you know, what you've been working on uh, over the past year and you're, you're still working on it. So <laughs> I, I don't tell us much about it, but I'm going to have to ask a few questions uh, very briefly. And maybe I will phrase these in in the form of predictions. And you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Right. How about that? All right. Okay. So I predict that the sequel will be titled More Knives Out. <laughs> no. Okay. Check. Yeah. Knives is with an apostrophe S. There was a there, there was a thread on Twitter where people came up with alternate with like possible sequel titles, and it was there were some really good ones. Do you know the title? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I'm not going to say it because I'm super suspicious. What's that? How many words in the title? Uh, two. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Unless I add a the at the beginning of it, in which case, I think two. I think two. Did you learn nothing from the social network? Come on. <laughs> okay. Um, now, we have, here at the KingCast offices, we have been, uh, well, we kidnapped Noah Sagan, and we have him in a room. And have been, you know, depriving him of sleep. And, you know, some people would, you know, take offense to this because it's a crime against humanity or the demon. Cancel culture. But he's not. Yeah. Cancel culture. Run amok. Uh, Here's what he told us. He told us that Daniel Craig isn't actually in the movie. That he (laughs) is returning for Knives Out 2, but he is mo-capping CGI Daniel Craig's performance. True or false? That Noah is mo-capping CG? He says he does a very good Daniel Craig. He said this under so I <laughs> can't do the voice, but he can do the walk. He said, yeah. uh, well, I, the, the, as far as Noah knows, that's true. The reality, and I will break the news here is that we're going to use that mocap data, uh, and actually apply it to a model of Tony Collette's body. So Noah's actually <laughs> Tony in the movie. <laughs> I would pay to see it. And Tony playing, that would be actually be great to get the entire cast from the last movie, but have them mocap the performances and just shuffle randomly. It could be like Clue, <laughs> where based on what right. showing yeah. you go to, it's a different shuffling of who's playing. Oh my God. See, now you got to start over. <sighs> start from scratch. Thank God. By the way, is there like a sensation after the first one where you're kind of like, man, I wish I could get this person back? Or are you just writing with people in mind? So you're like, it's fine. We're going to knock it out of the park every time. <laughs> no, every single one of those actors, man. I, yeah, I've, I've kind of like, I I think it's, it was, I don't know. It, it's, it, I'm split because there are so many actors that I want to work with that are exciting. So the idea of working, part of like the whole idea of doing it was like, oh, it'd be really fun. I can just write another set and work with like more in, interesting in a, another group of actors. But um. But yeah, every single one of them was just a joy. It'd be, I, yeah. So, and I keep like, cause Noah is the one that I think I'm going to just like bring, bring back just in a different role. But I keep like tempting myself like, oh, and then maybe we could get, no, I can't, I get, I have to like lash myself to the mask and like remember, no, we're a whole new cast with this one. So maybe Jamie Lee can call in at a certain point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. I would like yeah. to see Noah come back, but just with an eye patch. No explanation. Yeah. I can make that happen. I can yeah. make that happen. Very easy. And this is my <laughs> final prediction. Yeah. I believe the film will be set. In a tropical location. Oh, that's an interesting prediction. So that's not a no. I, I'm not saying yes or no. I was just <laughs> <laughs> funnily, funnily enough. That's well, weird sound. All right. Funnily good. enough, uh, I've had that conversation with Rom now on two of your sets. Yeah. Uh, because when I visited you on Star Wars, it was fucking cold as hell and then when i visited you on knives out it was cold as fucking hell it was in boston it like you know the joke on every one of the movies we've ever made is like we're yeah we're there in the freezing cold and i I, at some point i will say next movie 
fade in exterior Turks and Caicos. Don, you know, <laughs> the thing is because Rom is a good producer, I also know that even if I did that, we would end up shooting on the coast of the Black Sea. <laughs> you know, we would end up shooting in a parking lot in Brighton. You know, it, it doesn't work to do that. So I don't know. We'll see what we get. Well, that's all I got. Uh, that's, you know, the extensive, you know, I think I've gotten all the information I need from Noah. Uh, right? You're a softie. You're a lightweight. Uh, Eric, do you have anything for our esteemed guest? No, man. I'm, uh, I'm all good. If, if, Ryan, I don't know if there's any uh, any final thoughts you have on, on writing or King on the Whole or or how beautiful Scott and I are as people. Yes. You yes, know, either, gonna, either or. Yes, I'm going to save them for after we, we stop recording. I'm just going <laughs> to go on. We don't want that. <laughs> No, I, I thank you guys for asking me to do this. And the, the book is, if anyone listening hasn't read the book, it, it is fantastic. And, you know, one of mm-hmm. the, you know, one of the, the great writers of our time writing so, I don't know, so inspiringly. You're right. You're, you're right. It's an inspiring book. It makes you want to write, which um, is pretty miraculous because as we all know, writing is the worst. That's yeah. Yeah. Podcast instead of finishing up your script. Oh, this is heaven. That's why I'm going to stay on and keep talking even after you guys go away. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. This was a delight. Uh, I think Thanks people have one, guys. Always uh, a pleasure. Many thanks to Ryan Johnson for joining us for that very. Lovely conversation. I, I have to say that the thing that like made me proudest about that episode, Scott, is that I, I'm a huge fan of a podcast called Script Notes mm-hmm. that John August runs with Craig Mazin. And I think the closest we're ever going to get to how amazing that podcast is was was like the last 30 minutes of this episode. I know there's some people out there that aren't, aren't a big fan of Ryan because they uh, hold a very deep and uh, insanely normal grudge against The Last Jedi, but... Even if you're like, I don't like The Last Jedi, you got to look at Looper and Brick and fucking Knives Out and like Brothers Bloom, everything this guy has done. He's an incredible writer. Also, The Last Jedi rules. So we don't want to hear your bullshit about that. (laughs) There might be a few listeners who are confused as to why you pulled out Rob Zombie for the intro. Do you want to kind of fill them in on uh, why exactly Dragula made an appearance before Ryan said hello? Yeah, well, uh, a few years ago at uh, Fantastic Fest, I interviewed Ryan. He showed up the the night before, and we were everyone was hanging out. We were doing karaoke and shit. Very, very cool and nice man. And I mentioned to him, I said, "Hey, I'd like to go really weird with this interview. Would that be all right with you?" And he was like, "Fucking bring it on!" And so I said, "Okay." And so I went into the interview with nothing but absurd nonsense questions. And the very first question in the interview was, well, what I told him was that I had interviewed Rob Zombie the the week before, and that there was a question I wanted to get to, but I didn't. So I was just going to pass it along to him. He was like, uh, okay. And I said, great. In your, your, your 1998 masterpiece, Dragula, is the Dragula a car that is a vampire or it's intended to be driven by vampires? And he refused to answer this question. That's how we kicked off the interview. Very combative for no reason. And that became sort of a running joke. If you want to read that interview, go to Google and type in, and now an intimate conversation with Ryan Johnson, and you'll find the whole thing. And there are still people that I noticed this in my, my, my Twitter mentions the other day who seem to think that this is real, that Ryan actually is the songwriter on Dragula. He's absolutely not, but I'm going to perpetuate that rumor until I am dead in the fucking ground. That is a promise, Ryan. You can look forward to that for the rest of your career. So I think it's safe to say we have a murderer's row lined up for the next, what, two or three weeks, Scott? Yeah, thereabouts. It's going to be um, big name stuff for, for a minute here. And we're not even done this week. We are dropping a bonus interview episode tomorrow surprise Uh, merry christmas christmas eve our interview will be with one mr nat wolf who is an actor you might know him from his work he's worked with josh boone a lot which is why he's in the stand uh but he was in fault in our stars and paper towns he was in the death note movie that was on netflix Mm -hmm. he plays uh lloyd henried on the CBS All Access version of The Stand. And he comes into the story in the, the second episode. We we kind of timed this for him to appear on our show at the same time he appears on The Stand. Is that correct? That is exactly right. 
you know by now that the stand is told non-linearly. Lloyd Henry gets his moment to shine in episode two, which will be airing uh, when you can hear the episode. That's correct. And he is a delight to talk to. I was mostly unfamiliar with uh, Nat's work before we spoke to him, but he charmed the pants off of me. Y'all enjoy that. And this is just another one of the you know, surprises we wanted to drop this week. We wanted to make a Christmas week special for everyone. And then on Friday, let me tell you about this. Uh, one of our very first uh, episodes while we were doing the show was an in-depth conversation with a gentleman by the name of Glenn Mazzara, who came onto the show and basically laid out all his plans for the Dark Tower Amazon series that was going to happen. And it broke our hearts. He showed us the pilot for the thing. We liked the pilot. Uh, and then he told us what else he had planned. And um, it very nearly shattered our will to live and also led to a bunch of people like petitioning Amazon to release the pilot, which, by the way, it's not going to happen, folks. Like, don't bother. But we knew we wanted to have him back at some point. And one of the things we wanted to talk to him about was a script he had written some years ago to be directed by Mark Romanek called The Overlook Hotel. This was to be a prequel to The Shining, which, you know, I was very skeptical of that such a thing could work. And this script was awesome. But we never quite got around to doing that episode with Glenn. Uh, And then... This month, we wanted to do an extra special commentary for uh, our Patreon subscribers. So we decided to do this Shining. And we asked Glenn if he would come back and do a commentary on The Shining with us while also like telling us a little bit about his plans for The Shining prequel. So that's what's happening on the KingCast Patreon this Friday. You're going to get a full-length commentary for The Shining featuring Glenn Mazzara as the guest. And he's going to lay out those plans. We're going to talk all about Kubrick and... Jack Nicholson's performance, Shelley Duvall's performance. We get into all that shit. It is a must-listen commentary. So if you're not already subscribed, please go to patreon.com backslash the KingCast and get signed up at the Gunslinger level now. So on Christmas, you can revisit The Shining with your families and uh, listen along to that commentary. It's a barn burner. It's a pretty great one because you have to keep in mind he studied the movie fairly obsessively when he was writing The Overlook Hotel And he pulls out some really great insight into how Kubrick's visual language is setting up the tension and scares and tone of the whole thing. And and so you get a little bit of of Stephen King nerds just sitting around and bullshitting and having fun watching The Shining. You get a little bit uh, of him telling you what his Overlook Hotel thing was. And by the way, it's an incredible script. It's one of my favorite unproduced scripts uh, I've read in the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes in depth on that. And then there's also, uh, you know, some fairly good analysis from from Glenn, not from us. We, we You can't expect that from us. But we remain from, from Glenn. Absolutely. Which brings us to next week. What is the title for the main feed episode next week, Eric? For our final episode of the year on Scott Wampler's birthday, we will be releasing there's a handful of titles that are, are left that are big boy titles. And this is one of them. Christine. This is an episode that I would say is in the vein of what other episodes is it like? I would love to tell people, but then that'll give away who our guest is because our guest is a returning favorite. Oh, that, uh, of the yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Big name, big title and a truly fascinating sort of dissection of what is going on underneath Christine's hood, so to speak. Right. So next week is Christine. Come back and join us for that. And in the meantime, uh, make sure to check the feeds tomorrow for the Nat Wolf interview. It's a rowdy one. He he rolls with a lot of our wonky comedy stuff. I tell a very embarrassing family story involving Paul McCartney. And (laughs) story is so funny. It's a fun listen, and you'll gain some insight into how we approached uh, a very important character in The Stand. All right, we'll see you guys tomorrow for Nat Wolf. We'll see our Patreon subscribers on Friday for the Shining Commentary with Glenn Mazzara, and we'll see everybody else next week for Christine. Happy holidays, everyone. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Yours truly.